0: Body cams haven't stopped the violence. Having the footage hasn't stopped the violence. Like, it's actually just been, well, to use Toni Morrison's famous discussion of racism, she said, like, there's always going to be one more thing.
1: Welcome to Surviving Society with
2: Chantal Lewis and
1: Tiso Regis, executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon.
2: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.
1: Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Dr. Zion Yao, who is a lecturer in American literature to 1900, as well as a co-director of the Queer Studies Network at UCL London. Their first book is Disaffected, The Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America, which has won the Duke University Press Scholars of Colour First Book Award. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> Zion, well done. Thank you. Um, <laughs> her honours include American Studies Association's Yasu Zakipara Essay Prize. She is BBC Radio 3 AHRC New Generation Thinker and co-host of the brilliant podcast, I really like, PhDvers. Zion, welcome to the show. Um, It's a pleasure being here at long last. Honestly, like, I I come across your Twitter, I think, about four or five years ago now. And I've just been such a fan. And I know we've got friends of friends. I I really want to meet Zion. I really want to meet (laughs) Zion. Like Zion's a real one. Mm -hmm. Because I saw how you were engaging both with scholarship and the academy in a way that me and Tiso like talk about in terms Mm. of history, in terms of sociology, but also in terms of literature as well. And the literature stuff I'm such a student of. Like I don't like. uh, like, I I don't don't know anything about. I don't know anything about. So just the way you're such an interdisciplinary scholar and I love that big fangirl moment I am mean, I fan
0: back at you like I just I feel like I got to I learned about surviving society very early on because of course uh, you work also with um, uh, Leading Roots as well that I always keep always recommend to mm. Black Students I Encounter Aww. and of course you, do, you work with Paulette who's awesome as well yeah, so it's just yeah. like I think wonderful networks of like people who I guess are surviving the Academy so to speak yes. that are still able to preserve some sense of themselves and let themselves get yeah, completely taken over by this or sort of corporatized mechanized mm-hmm. neoliberal marketization <laughs> of the Academy that we were critiquing Zion definitely. gets it
2: she knows <laughs> you know she Zion, knows you know sign
1: sign sign already when even like the episode and Zions on the arc on am oh. telling so right this is the nicest book cover I've ever seen. Is, I
2: feel bad. My, my this is, is bad.
1: this is the nicest book cover mm. I've ever seen. Who is the designer of your book so cover?
0: This goes. This is quite a, a bit of a story. If you let me yes. have a bit of a digression. So during the very first lockdown, I was living alone, feeling extremely alone. And I was on Instagram looking at the posts by friends who were in Vancouver, who are in Vancouver, where I did my postdoc. And one of my dear friends, Lucia Lorenzi, um, who is a, a black queer femme artist, scholar, a- activist, um, herself, was painting during lockdown, this whole series. And this particular painting she posted that day, and she called it intimacy. And somehow, as soon as I saw it, I knew that it somehow captured the sense of fragility, longing, self-preservation that i was trying to explore in my book around unfeeling that is not just about withdrawals but also like the promise of of better intimacies i think mm. and so uh, i asked lucia if i could use it and she generously said i could and then i asked duke i was like well one of my friends is a brilliant artist i know you haven't heard of her yet but like we should Really mm-hmm. see if we can use this work. And they said yes. And I was really grateful that then the cover designer, Amy Harrison, who's a member of Duke University Press Workers Union, that I just want to give a plug out for. Big up. Uh, yep. Um, beautifully designed it. Um, gave, gave, let me give feedback on the cover. And she's also like, oh, because the original painting had was in gold leaf as well. Amy was like, oh, should I reproduce the gold leaf with gold foil? We've never done that before. And I was like, yes, please. Because <laughs> gold is my chosen accessory. Um, mm. If people could see my earrings. Mm. And so I just really love the idea of that. That There's also something that I think about, a very femme aesthetic about it. Such a, and, but also this book cover
1: and listeners, you'll be able to see um, on socials like the, and also in our um, episode note links, the, the book cover because it's brilliant and also get the book. But this book, book cover is just everything that ac- the academy and higher it's education needs. It's just the spice, isn't it? Yeah,
2: it's an, and you know what? is it's the texture as well yeah see the texture yeah that's what i think is sick man Mm-mm-mm. it's like a parchment right
1: okay so disaffected the cultural politics of unfeeling in 19th century america so tell the listeners or please can you tell us how you came to write this book and you can start as far back mm-hmm. as you like just we want to get to know because it's such an intimate book and there's me and tisa have so many feelings about it and what it means for us, particularly our black sense of selves, like it's very Fanonian, I thought as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, could you tell us tell us a bit about the journey to writing it?
0: I mean, it, it's a difficult one. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I could take it way back. Yeah. Like, I think let's like go to the turn of the last century. Like, how did it even become um, enter academia? Because I think that it's always useful to sort of situate how do people come to the point of writing their first book and something I've been trying to say in a lot of talks, especially when I know that there's going to be junior people there, is to acknowledge that I know that talking about a first book can really seem to reify a meritocracy, like academic meritocracy, gives people a sense of linear progress. Oh, this person worked really hard. We know it's hard out there, but hey, they managed to make it. Um, and I think, of course, like I worked hard and there's but there's also accidents, but there's also structural forces at play. And for me, I think it goes back at least a century. At the turn of the 20th century, my great grandfather got on a boat um, in Hong Kong that he thought was going to go to San Francisco and he didn't know English. And this is also before Passport, so he didn't necessarily check where he was going. And instead of ending up in San Francisco, he ended up in Liverpool without knowing English. Um, And so it's a bizarre accident. And I like to say maybe this is why I'm sometimes anxious about, you know, traveling or like taking public transit because I don't know where I'm going to end up. Um, And for a long time, this is part of like the family lore, like the sort of accident that he ended up there in Liverpool. And although he didn't know English, he eventually um, managed to get a tutor and and he managed to learn some English. And then he ended up um, getting into Merton College, Oxford. Um, And so like this sort of seems to be the celebration of accidents and so forth. But put into context, um, this sort of family story is in a way no accident he ended up in Liverpool, precisely because of course, Liverpool was such a major port that was built on chattel slavery. And then after the um, abolition of the, of the slave trade on, in the British side, then eventually they, they shifted to Asian indentured servitude. And so there's also quite a considerable black and then eventually Chinese population in Liverpool. So in a way, it's not really that surprising that Hong Kong being colonized by the British, that one of the main ways that he would have been able to travel internationally would be a route that would have taken him to Liverpool. And I think it's sort of an interesting anecdote because I think it it piques people's interest and it seems very funny, but I think it really illustrates the way that racialization operates across empires, across geographies on in unexpected ways. And honestly, I think that that sort of accident sort of set up my family in ways that um, are also distinctly classed. That meant that I was eventually more likely to be able to go to university, that my family is also more likely to let me do work in literary studies generally and to be really supportive of that particular arc as opposed to the usual like model minority um stem narrative that uh particularly east asian students are so uh, expected to occupy and i feel like that is part of the background that led me to this picker book and i feel like i'm also trying to capture something of the complicated geographies and feelings and structures that led to me being able to do this work and it's a way it's the book for me is like a process of of knowledge production, but also self-knowledge at the same time. So this is a a big background. Do you know why Zion's (laughs) my sort of academic year?
1: Because Zion doesn't try to separate the self, the story, the family, the lineage from the scholarship. And that's what I feel like sometimes we have difficulty. When we invite academics to come on this show, they sometimes try to present their work or how they come to be writing, what they're writing as something separate from the self or something separate from the family history, but just going straight in and yeah, this is what it's about. It, but it's, I think those on. things
2: are racialized, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And gendered as well. So if you're, this is a marginalisation, but a white male academic, it's like an abstraction. This is an abstraction, what they're doing. Yeah. But for us, it's a, there's a story to tell. How I came to do this, there's a story to and tell. And it's
1: intimate, mm-hmm. and it's deep, and it's felt, and it's intergenerational. and.
2: But what's quite interesting is I know, when you spoke about the the colonial links, especially mm. with the, uh, like Hong Kong, like not many people know about this. Like <laughs> the East End of London, yeah, there's a, a massive Chinese population there. Mm-hmm up until like the 1950s no one really speaks about that Mm. but there's a whole erasure of this in this in that kind of in that kind of narrative right
1: thinking about hands over like people don't know um this history and how recent it was as well when like i do really feel like centering that is really important but the
2: madness is people do know but it's it's how it was kind of put across this is a colonial aspect of it but it wasn't put across like that in the media Mm. at the time i remember people didn't really speak about it that way and it was handled very classically the way british handled the colonization at the top but it wasn't really spoken about how it affected people at the bottom Mm -hmm. and i
1: guess that possibly brings us to the concept of disaffect or disaffected of unfeeling and Mm -hmm. it would be really great if you could explain to listeners what you what you're presenting this as
0: yeah so one reason i'm interested in thinking about unfeeling is that think about any sort of discussion of the history of, of oppressed, minoritized peoples, individuals, ever, and that the expectation is there's this going to be this narrative that's going to make them sympathetic, or the sort of expectation that, oh, people in power treated these people badly because they didn't realize that they were human like them, and yet they showed that they, you know, had tears and death and suffering and happiness, and therefore they got recognized, and that is like the is usually held up to be part of the formula of extracting rights and trying to do certain types of and doing justice work generally um, in terms of the usual sort of colonial governmental frames of like how how this is supposed to happen like appealing to power has to is supposed to be done through sympathy through feeling and this is particularly prevalent if you work in 19th century studies, or if you write 19th century literature, if you think of like the power of, say, um, slave narratives um, and so many other important narratives at the time, is that being put into this sort of bind of having to always prove sympathy, and yet, I think that it's more complicated than that, and people also in the 19th century also knew that it was more complicated than that, that they were entering um, a complicated economy of power in exchange for them expressing emotion in a way that was seen inappropriate, but that's not the whole story. So instead of doing the usual thing where they'd be like, oh, we didn't realize that Chinese people were human too, we didn't realize black people are human too, et cetera, et cetera, and then they'll, the usual the phrase of like, oh, Frederick Douglass, humanized black people, Swiss and Farge, humanized the Chinese. What instead, we just stayed with that negation and sort of thought like, why is that lack of recognition happening? And how do we also suspend the usual move of like, yes, we feel too. What does it mean to stay with it? What sort of alternative forms of thinking about feeling and feelings that are, are insurgent and partial and complicated and dissatisfied with just the norms of what is actually um, a very colonial white structure of feeling that pretends to be universal? And so that might sound a bit abstract to listeners, but I was wondering if, I think that there's a way of talking about it in everyday life, and this is something mm-hmm. that I really tapped to when I was working on the book part of it, that when I sort of made it shift from simply being a 19th century American project, but one that is, as you said, um, very nicely, very intimate, is that I think I was also drawing up on my lived experience, and lived experience of, of many of um, people around me, that how we negotiate everyday day life, how we negotiate survival, how we negotiate managing our energy has to do with, this calculus of unfeeling, when we choose not to be responsive, when we choose not to be um, repre- not to represent feeling in certain ways, to know that it's going to be il- seen as illegitimate in uncertain scenarios. And even though there are repercussions, even though you could alienate allies, even though you could be accused of like no, not doing activism properly, it could be seen as counterintuitive, counteractive. It is still important. To hold space for unfeeling.
2: That's sick. So when I was looking at your work and going through the, I- the idea of unfeeling, if I was from the enlightened point of view and from their kind of scholarship, how do I stop from going from unfeeling to indifference?
0: Well, I guess the question is also indifference to what? And I think it's mm. also about thinking about unfeeling. Unfeeling to what? Um, un- unsympathetic to what? And what are the repercussions? And so one thing I, I, I say in my book is like that a word like unsympathetic cuts both ways. If you're unsympathetic to power, you're seen as unsympathetic. And I think indifference also operates very similarly, that it's about perhaps from the, from the perspective of being a minoritized person that what happens if you're indifferent to power is very different than the indifference of people who are in power to, to everyone else. Um, and so I think positionality is really important. And so another thing I, I try to emphasize in my book is that when we talk about unfeeling, so often we talk about it as something coming from above, from oppressors. They are being unfeeling to minoritized peoples. But what if we think about it as a tactic from below? And that sort of shifts the dynamic. Like, you're uh, ostensibly, it's like, People who are minoritized are supposed are sort of expected to always having to prove themselves again and again. They're not given the luxury of being seen as disaffected, of being unfeeling, uncaring, because you're supposed to care about all the issues that you're connected to all the time. And I'm sure that we experience this a lot in the workplace and in the academy. You have to advocate for EDI, DEI, or whatever it is, because you kind of don't have a choice. But what if we had the opportunity to be indifferent or carve out these spaces of being indifferent, unfeeling, disaffected as it were. And actually it's about reallocating energy, time, emotion towards um, different goals.
2: We haven't been awarded that because it's not built into the philosophy. Mm. So following like the kind of Cartesian notion of doubt. Right. So that was the the ability to think. We were never classed as thinking beings. Mm -hmm. Right. So we are only classed as beings that were affected. So we didn't have the ability to think so we were not we weren't awarded that space to be, not to unfeel or feel mm-hmm. So we haven't had that so we try to unfeel we don't have that power so if i say to someone i'm not caring or say i withhold that feeling there's a generally a, a negative reaction to that yes we don't have that power
0: yes and i think it, i thank you so much for bringing it to Um, Enlightenment philosophy and this is something I try to engage a bit in my book and I'm very inspired by the work of um, the black Brazilian scholar um, Denise Ferreira da Silva on this in terms of her critique of Enlightenment because she sort of points about that all the sort of universalist thinking of Enlightenment philosophy is undergirded by coloniality and and the emergence of global coloniality in the 18th century and rather than just saying it simply like context she actually says it actually def- helps to define and determine how universalism is created and so um she's also drawing on the work of caribbean philosopher sylvia winter talking about say like the universal human or man is basically just white bourgeois western man who's overrepresented as the universal um and so i think that in in my work i'm sort of trying to take up the way that feeling and then unfeeling is sort of like the emotional corollary to the way that enlightenment um the enlightenment enlightenment definition of the human has also overrepresented some as universal over others and that it's not simply about trying to claim entry into the category of the of the universal Um, and I think that this is a place where I I take a lot of inspiration from black feminists like Hortense Spillers in her essay Um, Mama's uh, Baby, Papa's Maybe Mm -hmm. where she at the end of talking about the violence of ungendering due to child slavery rather than saying that well Black women um, and black men should then have access to the categories of woman and man. She says, "Well, what if we just let that go? What other possibilities are opened up when we realize that those very terms were built on this on violence, and maybe they can't be reclaimed? And what other ways of being are opened up?"
2: I think this is where we are, right? This is what the debates are right now: different categories of being. So, if you look at the kind of different, the different, the, the many genders that we have. This notion that we can be something else, but we call it like the white lash, right? You can mm. see the reaction to that. The idea that we could be something different, people it's people lose their minds because it's scary, because we don't know what we could be. And mm. that for people right now is it's, it's almost beyond comprehension right now.
1: But I think that Zion's work also like encourages us, encourages us to be comfortable in the uncomfortable, yeah, 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 yeah. which is what people who are so fixated on um well, people who are so committed to white patriarchal capitalist supremacy, I just can't get their head around. And that is, I think most people. So the process of saying, of being, I'm not gonna engage in categorization. I'm not, I'm gonna unfeel. I'm gonna be disaffected. As you said, T, like to not project my anger or to not say I care about this situation almost has the same reaction as if, as, as if I did respond. Mm. And I think that that's what your work is. So I want to engage more with I'm feeling actually, that is what I want to do, like in my life. But I also want to recognise that that
0: in itself is going to come with like an emotional labour as well. There's a cost to be paid. And I think yeah. that's something I tried to explore in my book that yeah. it's not a tactic without risks, but mm. sometimes it's just a necessity. I, I guess one thing I'd also add is like, it's not also as easy as a choice sometimes. Like mm. I think that we often do this unconsciously, just as a way of like the repetition of talking about microaggressions, right? Like sometimes it's just because you're burned out because you're exhausted. And I think that those are also legitimate as well. And sometimes it's not just as easy as being like, I'm gonna choose to do, take this tactic. Sometimes I think that just the way that we live life means that we develop a sort of callousness. And I think of it like, you know, a callous on your hands, but emotional callousness. Um, and that allows us to get certain types of work done much, much the way that a callus on your hand allows you to do work
2: but i think that analogy is quite it's a, it's a good analogy of a callus but a callus is also it's hard but it's also soft mm. so that work it, it's it's not painless it's it's a painful process so when i use unfeeling as negation i use it as a tool so i'll use it in every day when i'm walking down the street but sometimes sometimes i will use ambivalence to point out a double standard or bad behavior or what it will be because but it's still something that's, it takes a piece of me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You mm-hmm.
1: It's reminds me sort of talking about this, the process of yeah, negating or unfeeling, particularly when let's say we're experiencing a form of interpersonal racism. What is interesting about this, I think, is in a time where we have so much more visual um, representation of um, political calamities, struggle, of um violence and what we kind of choose not choose but what we what we put our energies into feeling and what is always really interesting to me is how much particularly women of color and black women are expected to be outraged and perform outrage Mm -hmm. about everything and then if we're not it's like don't you care Mm -hmm. why don't you care and it's like why? Why is it the? Why is the binary? Either I care or I don't care, mm-hmm. and I think that's also what your scholarship really um, speaks to and pushes me to think about more critically, particularly within my life. Like, how do I respond to those people who constantly want me to perform for them? Or constantly want me to perform feeling for them around certain type of certain types of issues mm-hmm. but when it comes to or when it has come to our lives that you, you talk about um, in the book when it comes to our life or minoritized lives we haven't the, the double standard is so it's such a pernicious thing to engage with because it's so real and that and I, and I think because of the visualization of pain of struggle that we have now the increase because of how digital our world is it's I think it's really brought these issues into sharp focus
0: the conversation around the resurgence of black lives matter has really drawn attention to why why share the videos why share why proliferate images of black pain and suffering in order to get sympathy like shouldn't do you have to see the thing in order to have evidence and especially what it has been shown like the body cams haven't stopped the violence having the footage hasn't stopped the violence like it's actually just been well to use tony morrison's um famous discussion of racism she said like there's always going to be one more thing like the threshold it's not about the threshold of evidence it just keeps on moving and so in a way there's just been a proliferation of pain and in a response like i think i've been seeing with a lot of friends like this response of a type of need for desensitizing and it's interesting because like uh it's like th- White activism, non-black activism is trying to also try to catch up in terms of how we could do better solidarity work. And so I think one thing we've been seeing a lot is like, check in with your black friends. But I've seen how that also goes badly because then people who are not actually friends tend to check in. And then I I know that uh, friends have said they've been even more burned out because then yeah. people are checking in on them all the time. To tick a box. Close. yeah like, just so am I doing my allyship right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: But is it, this is one of the things I've kind of got annoyed since since post 2020 so post uh Black Asthma, so the idea that you can teach empathy mm. and like it's like you're going to school like, i'm having to teach you how to be have this kind of component of humanism right mm. but it's odd like when you're teaching someone in a school not everyone's going to learn mm. it right mm-hmm. some people are bad students mm. so this idea that you can teach these feelings it's, it's it doesn't even make sense because did anyone teach us no it's something that you have to it's a process right mm.
1: yeah I think it's really interesting what you said about, yeah, the, um, the resur- resurgence of Black Lives Matter and, and the images or the increased images and videos, etc. And I'm sort of taking myself back to um, June 2020 and um, the murder of George Floyd and, and what we've been trying to make sense of nearly for two years now, what was it about that? video that made white people that i've not seen since fucking primary school <laughs> message me like what do you think what's happened why are they doing this like it was it's so like on a philosophical level on a kind like if we're just doing yeah if we're just doing talking about this from a, a philosophical point of view and also just thinking about it in terms of like us as academics trying to understand why things happen what was it what was it? What was it that made them feel? And there are loads of different components to it. But I think in the context of Zion scholarship, it is such an interesting moment mm-hmm. to sort of to, to, to think through as to what becomes a global affect.
0: Mm. Uh,
2: do you know what? I don't even... Uh, to this still day, don't I, I still don't know.
0: Zion, tell us.
1: Still
2: oh don't my know. goodness,
0: I don't <laughs> think I could... I, could I, answers, I think, well, one thing it, it, that I think about is, as you're saying, the returns, they're proving their, their allyship to themselves. And one thing I explore in like my first chapter of my book is the way that the white American captain sees um, the enslaved Senegalese man, Babo as human only in relation to um, Mm. serving his Spanish enslaver. And so even though he thinks he's being good, it's just actually about a triangulation, which actually um, reifies whiteness. And he's just directing his sympathies conditionally to Babo because at one point he says like, oh, faithful friend, I cannot call you slave or something like that. But he's like, but that's really disingenuous because he literally is enslaved. <laughs> like, um, and it just shows how contingent that sort of sympathy is because it's the performance that's meant for um, to maintain whiteness, even though it seems to, is trying to be like, oh, I care so much about black people type moments. Mm, mm, mm.
2: it's, quite, it's quite interesting. Like I said, when you use those kind of like, li- li- using literature in that way, focusing, like why do we always focus on that the main character and their sympathy for their needs and not look mm. at through the other guy's eyes. Mm-hmm. And like the
1: slave's eyes. Like, yeah and
2: they don't come across the say so when I look at cartoon different is the earth right? Bear with me, let me land, let me land. All right, all right. Let me Go on, go the, on, go the, on. The, there's a the, it's from a 19th century from an early 1920 1930s comic strip and the main guy, Ma- Mandrake, he goes to Africa and picks up a king and he, this king becomes his like Baba, a kind of a, a, a manservant, and in the comic he's referred to as a manservant. But this is like a is chil- he a
1: slave? Is he a slave?
2: Effectively, he's a slave, but he's not considered a slave through the. Co- so, if you watch the eighties cartoon, yeah. he's like actually a superhero. Yeah, but he is effectively a manservant there to support the needs of Mandrake. But you don't—you never see it through his eyes. You only see it through Mandrake's eyes. Ruined people's childhoods. So, if you're from the eighties, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I sorry. don't know what that is, <laughs>
1: but-, no, he- but no, it's interesting and bringing it back to yeah, those kind of quote-unquote, performances, which we now, a lot of them, we've seen as performances because we were suspicious at the time. We're like, why are all these people saying Black Lives Matter that didn't really care about Black Lives before? Like mm-hmm. why, well, what was it, what was it? And now we know that it was, yeah, something that was, th- th- you can't take away what happened. And like we we speak about this, I think nearly every episode now, you can't take away what happened. And there were uh, a lot of political gains, materially, socially, psychosocially, particularly I think for a black sense of self from the research of Black Lives Matter. However, the way that white people engaged in particular with that moment has seemed to be short lived. Yes
2: when I look at it, maybe they see them, the universalization of the worst kind of racism. That is like r- classic racism or white man f- physically holding that. Because when it comes to more kind of nuanced forms of racism, like systemic racism,
1: mm-hmm.
2: the first thing you hear over it's not racist.
1: But that's still... But that's... But, but. Black people have been killed by the police since George died. So hmm. I just as George's murder so
2: it's I think so it's, I, think it's, I think it's so it's so visible it's, not so it's so obvious right? I know
1: but that's that has still since yeah, hap- yeah. that still happened. But so think, but they still but now that but But when, when the, the the
2: you when it comes to like more nuanced forms of like see for example the first reaction about the UK when they, when people over the UK say the UK's racist, they're like, no, it's not.
1: No, I agree. Yeah. I totally mm. agree. I don't disagree with what you're saying, but yeah. what I'm saying is, what happened in June 2020 yeah. has happened since, multiple times yeah, since. Times. Yeah, yeah. And so, maybe those mumps in performing their feeling that had there were certain things I needed to tick, and it's done. Mm-hmm.
0: I guess to take it back <laughs> to enlightenment philosophy, hopefully, people are not <laughs> sick of this yet, but in, like, I look at um, Adam Smith's work, and obviously he's most famous as a, an economist. But uh, one of his works I look at is *The Theory of Moral Sentiment*, mm-hmm. where he theorizes thinking about sympathy or what he calls fellow feeling. And it seems like he's just sort of universalizing it in the sort of void of like, you know, it's about you know trying to feel what someone else feels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when you start, when you really read into this book, which is like 800, 900 pages long, and so I think usually people I, I notice usually quote the, like the first 20 pages, and I think it's because you know people only have so much time, but Taking the time to read through it, there was this point where I hit the passage where he talks about how fellow feeling or sympathy is actually writ large, where he complains that he says that people like it has been observed that um, people throughout Asia, Africa and the Americas are not genuine in their feelings and they refuse to really show their feelings um, or something like uh, to that effect. And I was like, wow, this is actually how it operates, like Adam Smith working in like the the moment of uh, British Empire starting to grow into its global state. Is actually saying like, oh, it actually is a way of dividing whiteness from from racialized peoples, the the West and the rest, and it was never simply abstracted. It was always this very thing. And I can't help but wonder, as as someone who's still a relative newcomer to the UK, like, to what extent is that sort of disavowal of racism and particularly anti-blackness is not British, like a continuation of the sort of British civility of this type of fellow feeling that goes back to Adam Smith, like who gets to be seen as a fellow, right?
2: Yeah. So when I read that passage that you put in your book, it's like he doesn't recognise himself in that person. Yes. So so therefore, if I can't see myself in that person, then I can't feel them. Because the UK is very classed about it, there's a class version of it. I can't... So when they're talking about people at home, the working classes, the Irish, they cannot see themselves in these people. So they must be different from a subhuman. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I can treat them in a particular way.
1: I can marginalise them.
2: And I, I think, especially if you read his stuff or... When they're talking about the Irish as well mm-hmm. in that particular time, it's the same kind of view. I cannot see these people. So they're lazy. They work shy. They they are to be affected. Mm-hmm. We we project stuff on them because they can't do it for themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess the the flip side is like one reason why I'm interested on in feeling is like for instance like. Similar allegations about, like, say, Chinese labor being seen as very cheap, but also lazy. Paradoxically, at the same time, but also sometimes working too hard, and that's why they're taking away, you know, the jobs of the hardworking white man. Like, this is all very, very familiar language. And um, throughout the time, it's like the sort of you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And the point is not to show that you can be an industrious in that you're not like the lazy stereotype, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually like people are choosing to work differently. Like, they're actually choosing other ways of being that are not legible to power. Um, And it's important to say that as opposed to just seeing it as like a negative stereotype. And another point that I'm trying to make around unfeeling and the way it's particularly racialized and gendered is that the negative stereotypes that are often associated with this are often a way of deliberately vilifying what is like a legitimate tactic or a legitimate way of being.
1: Mm. Sick. It's so sick. It's so powerful. It's so, so powerful. The other thing that the book did for me, I'm just going to roll back a few years now when we first read Robin DiAngelo's uh, White Fragility. Mm-hmm. When that first came out, we I think we've even got an episode on it. We were quite moved by the book. Um, I think that there were bits about it that we were like, yeah, this is the type of thing that I see within everyday life as to why I can't get conversations about race further on or why I can't get white people to hear me or why I can't get like I'm, I'm I'm black and white mixed race like why can't I get the white members of my family <laughs> to engage in conversations about race that are um, meaningful and reparative like what is that and Robin DeAndre seemed to give like a kind of analysis which which helped but since then we've definitely become much more critical of that work on the show through the help of critical friends through the help of scholarship that's sort of written back to that work i don't want to center this as a personal um critique necessary on um, robin DeAngelo, but more on the kind of um industrial complex of the white fragility type thing and i yeah. think that there's people like um gloria Becker that have um Black feminists, in particular, that have sort of spoken back to these things. I think about white dominance, think about white innocence, um, that have that are being more critical about about decentering the white individual's feelings about race and how they perform that, um, and thinking more about it as structural and part of yeah mm-hmm. uh, colonial history. But I think that one of the things that you do in um, in this book is really give us a better way of understanding the actual violence of these quote-unquote fragile moments and i think that that is something that we need going forward because actually when we just engage in the white tears or white people getting upset about being called racist it hasn't actually got it hasn't actually got us anywhere and it becomes a kind of like i mean i've been there you just end up doing therapy with mm-hmm. that therapy for them it reminds me of like that um remember when liam neeson said he wanted to like oh yeah like yeah. Oh, that was bad. He, wanted to, um, he wanted to
0: beat up any black any man he bl- saw any black man he
1: saw like you Standard. kind of get into that kind of territory and i think that's what zion like critiques but also gives us another way of looking at the violences of this without centering the white mm.
2: The white individual. What's yeah. interesting is, is that he revealed a long history that this that's not a new thing. They did that anyway. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's quite interesting. He just said that, and he's like, "Oh, well, you've done that." He but thought, like,
1: yeah, he thought it was
0: making an isolated yeah. racist statement, but actually, yeah. that's what yeah, that's what, what they've normal. done to us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I I also initially thought that White Fragility was a really interesting book because, and I do think it is an interesting book because it does, I think, identify um this aspect which is on un- was at the time under remarked, um, but since then, like, I think part of the frustration is that it diagnoses a single symptom. And what I'm trying to do with thinking about, like, feeling writ large, unfeeling writ large, and how it's, like, structured and racialized and colonial, and way it's also, like, the the influence of American cultural imperialism. And this is why I say, even though my work is rooted in 19th century America, like, I think it's, like, unfortunately, even those for us who are not Americans, like, we can't escape the power of American cultural imperialism. Like, that we're trying to sort of, I'm trying to Diagnose like the larger structure in which um, symptoms of, such as white fragility take place in which the stereotype of the angry black woman takes place in which the stereotype of the inscrutable oriental takes place like the the frigid queer for instance um, and these are being particular types that are all within this larger structure of who is considered human who isn't mm-hmm. and it's not just about being like let's be human too it's more complicated than that
2: no mm-hmm. and I, I think you're right it sits in the, the soft power of the, of the united states so <laughs> Again, looking at the public culture, when I went to see the only Fast and Furious film I went to see, Hobbs and Shaw, right? But he, he, the, very, the very last line at the thing, he says, he, he says about the, the, the main villain, who's a black guy, now you're human. Oh, God. <laughs> like,
0: Isn't he, is he called Brixton? He's called Brixton. The main human is called Brixton. And <laughs> the main, like the, black, guy, the black guy. Is he
2: It's
1: called Brixton. Yeah, is it's Idris Elba? Idris Elba. right? Oh, God. And,
2: he, and he's, he, he, they said, you're not, he, now he's not human. And there's a dividing line. There's, they actually kind of mark it out. And I said, that all these are choices. These are editorial choices that they've made and put in the film. And you're thinking, well, what are they saying here? And again, it's the idea, who is allowed to be human? And they told him, he's not. <laughs> You're not human.
0: That's so awkward. I guess like, so to go back to performative allyship and white fragility, there's an example that I think might be really interesting to bring up. Um, that's from the beginning of Get Out. And I feel like this is probably useful so because most people have seen Get Out at this point, um, which is a scene that um, in retrospect is very telling, but also I think I there's think a very different experience as watching that film where some people were really surprised that Rose betrayed him. And some people were like, oh yes, of course. And it was sort of funny because I was more of the latter camp. But then I, I think I talked about it with um, my friend Liz, that I co-host PhD I was with, and we both initially felt bad because we like, why are we just automatically suspecting the white girl? And then eventually, we're like, oh yes, we were right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's really telling us early on. There's a scene where I think that particularly white audience would probably read as her being a good person, where he is pulled over by the police uh, when they're driving to her, uh, her, her home. And in the scene, uh, uh, Chris is trying to be really cool and really chill about it and very subdued because he's trying not to escalate. He's sort of exercising on feeling because he knows that as a black man, he, everything he's seen will be seen as disproportionate. Um, and Rose, however, keeps escalating the situation. She gets super upset. She wants to see the guy's badge, his number, etc, etc, etc. And I think that for a naive white view of, um, of this of this whole scenario would be like, oh, she's really, she cares about him so much. But actually for a lot of others, like there seems something very off about it because you're not supposed to escalate with the police um, in that way, in this sort of really naive way because it wasn't going to come out at her. It was going to come out against him ultimately. And I think there's something really interesting there in terms of like whose responsiveness is... Being seen as indicative. How is she making it more about her, even though ostensibly it's about it's actually about his safety, and also how is he trying to again de-escalate, be non-responsive as a way of controlling the situation? But, well, I
2: was gonna say it's not almost like a form of paternalism, right? Mm. So I can feel for you. I yes. can do these things for you because I you're again, to be affected. You're affectable. So I will do these things for you on your behalf, just like in the days of slavery. So you can't do certain things. I will do them for you. Yes. And again, that's in those films. It's like um, like Lethal Weapon and all those things. You see Mel Gibson. He's the one doing the things for Danny Glover. Danny Glover is the guy that will come and help him at the end. So I will help you not to die. I will support you. And you find in all those kind of things. Sorry, bro. I'm killing your films,
1: bro. <laughs> Tiso brings like the critical lens on all TV and film I can't watch anything anymore. I just, like, <laughs> it's over. Like I literally can't watch TV. Um so, I really like that example and like it's so interesting because it just reminds me of just being being in like meetings or being in conversations with like other white people and particularly uh, I think since um, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter where there is a kind of performance of outrage without mm. a kind of material engagement. And sometimes that outrage does more harm than good. But equally, I don't want to re us to reassert or reengage with the apathy, which mm-hmm. I feel like feel like has been such a. thing about my own life, like white people around me being so apathetic about the racism that I've experienced, grew up around a lot of white people being apathetic, and I've that was really affected my. Um, sense of black self as a young person but then now as an adult seeing much more verbalized or in a lot of the time performative outrage i do have a similar kind of feeling to what what the former and Mm. that's it's so it's difficult isn't it because then they'll say or then other kind of more collaborators let's say will say well what do you want them to do as in other black people and people of color that want the want to engage or get get some of the fruits of capitalism so what do you want them to do what do you expect them to do and i don't really know and perhaps that's where unfeeling can help and it's about self-preservation mm-hmm. as well as being a response a rejection there's so many things about it yeah. which could be powerful for yourself basically definitely yeah. like
0: i think that unfeeling is about not simply having to feel obligated to you know tamper fragile white feelings, mm-hmm. because I think like I think it's understandable that other people like will be really worried about white apathy returning, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, we have to keep them here while while they still care. But the problem is when you put all your energy to that, you aren't thinking about the other forms of like intra-community organizing that could be done between people of color within specific your com- community. Like it ends up reifying a particular politics of recognition as the only way in which this work is done. Yes, and I think that's this. I think speaks strongly for any of us who are trying to do work in institutional settings particularly in the academy where we know we have to go through certain say committees certain structures of recognition in order to extract resources and those are important but we also also have to know that's not the be all and end all of the particular struggle like it's also about organizing outside those spaces it's also about making space outside those spaces because sometimes like sometimes they will also refuse us and i think that's something that <laughs> it's very much on my mind right now because uh, i feel like at uh, University College London, we've also seen, much like many other institutions, like the opening of many different gains, and in our, our particular case around the reckoning with the legacy of eugenics at UCL, has meant the opportunity yeah. of a lot of anti-racist work mm-hmm. finally being seen as valid, mm-hmm. finally a push to hire black academics specifically. Mm-hmm. But for instance, uh, a couple years ago, under our previous provost, there was this promise <laughs> to hire 50 black academics over the next three years without actually a plan involved. Mm-hmm. And now they've changed it to five years. And that has been like, OK, but how is that going to happen? How are you going to do this? Are you just going to revise your hiring policies? Are you actually going to like seek out and support black academics? Are you going to retain them and so forth? But that being said, like, it's like it's I don't want to underestimate like, that there's so much activist work that probably had to push to say like you have to make sure you hire academics of color, particularly black academics. And then it sort of ends up being read as this generalized statement. And then it's been sort of the work for a lot of us in more local settings in our particular faculty to be like, OK, the university has made this large promise. How does it, is it actually going to work in arts and humanities? And so then we've been like trying to strategize like on the ground, like what hiring panels are coming up? How can we talk to our dean about this? How can we actually put pressure to say, like, if there's this larger university imperative, which actually has no particular plan or particular teeth about it, how can we actually use it as a way to put pressure? And so I think it's also about leveraging very different um, different parts of the apparatus of the politics of recognition against each other, as opposed to simply like seeing it as the be all and end all. Like how do you w- use it against itself sometimes, but also to know that sometimes it also w- won't work. And also, mm-hmm. I don't know, the possibility of holding ambivalence, both the hope, but also the cynicism as a, as a sort of protective uh, way of dealing with disappointment. No, I told you, you made so
1: many good points there. I just want to draw on one of your points about basically like we've got to keep white people with us we've got to keep them with us we've got to keep them on this journey that in your i think you're right like that can take up a lot of time and i think that i myself sometimes can engage in 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 that kind of um praxis and some a lot of time time is better spent on not necessarily constantly engaging in how to get people's racial literacies literacies up and actually sometimes we need to be in doing it doing more inter-ethnic strategizing, whether that's in uh, thinking about the materiality of uh, working classes, of community organising, whether that's in the institution. Like, sometimes the actual, the process of trying to plead our humanity or often plead our humanity, it's a waste of fucking time. But mm. we
2: know this. But I, this, know, the, this I know, I know, but we this. still do it. Like, like, we know. So whenever <laughs> I think of pleading our humanity, I think of the, the classic picture I, am I not a man
0: am I not a brother yeah, yeah. you see
2: we've done this a million times yeah, 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 and I think like I said before I said like I think last week I think we've when I looked at Nietzsche again it's the understanding of power so his analysis of power is like he will get upset with the enlightenment because he said it's all words mm. there's power doesn't care about those words I don't care about Socrates or Plato because they use arguments I have power so why would I care and this has been our, our trying to keep white people they have the power so we that's what we fought. Mm. but power doesn't care about our words it never mm. never does so we we are in the same situation so we should we should be looking horizontal to our to our other marginalized mm. people and saying look we can form solidarity because we're going through the same thing
0: mm-hmm. yeah and that's something that i try to explore in my work i try to explore it in like the work that i generally do um, within the academy hopefully outside of it as well um, and so in my second chapter for instance um i look at how martin delaney who's considered one of the founders of black nationalism he was building like what we now say is like a pan-african coalition of black people throughout the diaspora west africa and the caribbean but also he's reaching out to the indigenous peoples of the americas at the same time and also trying to reclaim a type of african indigeneity and um, at one point he even talks about how there are displaced chinese people in the caribbean um, um, as well and so I think that there's something really powerful in terms of thinking about unfeeling as a type of refusal, a type of turning away. I sort of think of it as a type of spatial orientation. When With turning away from power and looking away to other possibilities, you might end up seeing that your gaze converges with others who are also trying to look away as well. Um, and the possibility of building other communities, other forms of the social, to not simply allow, say, the master's house be the only house that's possible. And I think about of course, Audrey learns that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, where she makes a sort of point about the different forms of um, being minoritized as as being black, being a woman, being a lesbian, um, being working class, and so forth. And she says that it's about um, standing alone, um, isolated, and then finding common cause with others. And that the sort of point that she's trying to make is that the realm that we see as the social isn't the only game in town. There's other ways of creating different forms of, of social, of the social, other homes that we can make that will be better better homes, actual houses, so to, to sort of extend the metaphor.
2: The universalization of epistic knowledge, right? So mm-hmm. the, the Enlightenment universalizes knowledge and it, it limits the ability to think differently because all you're drawing from that same pool.
1: But if we go, if we draw back to what Zion was just saying to you in terms of thinking about Audrey Laws as an example, and just thinking about black feminist practice in general, the point is, it's not easy and it has to be purposeful. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about in terms of like, what the enlightenment pushes us to do. Yeah, we know that. So we have to be in opposition to that. And, and
2: so this is what I try to do, but essentially I'm still using the same tools. Like, so, I, i'm born in the enlightenment i can't think outside it so the only way i could kind of offset that even though i'm trying to critique it is to kind of read up for, uh, other social systems out there but i still read it through the lens of the enlightenment mm. almost like a paradox i'm trying to fight against something that I've, i have no other experience other than
0: this so mm-hmm. it's like you sort of end up being locked into a purely um, oppositional relationship.
1: <laughs> yeah. um,
0: and that I think that's really like you mentioned like sort of Fanonian, like that's mm-hmm. this sort of critique of like being the simply anti colonial, not being the, the like what does it actually mean meaningfully to build other than simply in opposition, right? And I think that for me, one thing I'm trying to do in my work is to, on the one hand, I read people like um, Adam Smith, for instance, but then I also read Audre Lorde, Sarah Ahmed, Anzaldu. I'd like to sort of create these alternative um, traditions, which have also always existed. Like, in one way, it's oppositional, but also it's always been alternative. I think it's a way of, of decentering. It's a way of thinking differently. Like, a point that I make is also, Adam Smith would have a C that, Unfeeling is always in opposition to feeling. It's always this affront, and that's how he says it. Like he's so offended that you know the people across Asia, Africa, and America. So basically, the majority of the world, you know, doesn't doesn't want to want to play with them. Basically, um, <laughs> which is sort of just funny to think about it that way. To really like think about all these different traditions and think about the possibilities that are emerging from from different ways of thinking. And in that way, I sort of make this point of reading feminist and uh, queer of the color thinkers that unfeeling is not necessarily an opposition to feeling. It could be a way of, of alternative form of flourishing. Oh. Um, and so it's not... Uh, Just
1: and, so we say that again, unfeeling can be an, an alternative form of flourishing.
0: Yes. And so Beautiful. I think that okay. that's one way that I tried to read their work, that they say that it's generally recognised that um, these these writers, these theorists, these poets are centering the importance of their feeling as... Um, uh, black women, as indigenous women, um, as women of color generally. But what I'm also trying to read for is like the way that there's all these refusals in their texts where they say like, I wish I didn't have to keep on explaining myself to white women. Or like, um, I decide to sh- shut out their feelings, shut out their gaze, etc." is some of the language that Anzaldua works uh, uses as well. And they're showing that there's this necessity of this type of disengagement in order to center themselves and then center their chosen communities. Mm. Um, and that just... The appearance of lack is not necessarily absence. It could also be like lying dormant, lying fallow. Uh there's other ways that it can be emergent at different times. It's, sick, man. it's
1: amazing, isn't it? It's
2: in terms of feeling, sometimes when I engage in unfeeling, I'm not feeling sympathy, I'm feeling anger. How do I deal with that on a daily basis? And I and i'm sometimes I I don't know i, I actually, I'm actually i'm struggling at the moment yeah. i don't know how i deal with that that's the truth i don't know how i deal with that so i'm 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 feeling but i don't feel sympathy i feel mm-hmm. anger
0: mm-hmm. i guess like so one thing i explore in my book is again how it's i think very differently racialized and i i feel like i could respond to what you're saying but of course i have to address that. like i'm a non-black person of color that like the way that my anger manifests is not going to be Punished in the same way, mm. <laughs> obviously. Um, and a point that I also try to make in the book is that it's like the entire spectrum of black emotional responsiveness and expressiveness is ends up being demonized as unfeeling because it's always seen as illegitimate and contingent. Whereas it's, the contingency operates very different for, um, for Asians, for East Asians, that is. Because they sort of point out that oriental, inscrutibi- and oriental inscrutability is the most nameable racialized form of unfeeling. But actually, in that way, although then it's very clearly a negative stereotype, it also shows perhaps a partial recognition um, from whiteness that it's legitimate and that it can exist. And it does end up being fetishized in this um, grotesque way. It allows. It also ends up being aestheticized in a way as well. And so that's why I'd also not want to collapse my experience into your experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Oh, it makes sense.
1: It does. It makes it sense. Make it makes sense. sense. It does make sense. And I do. I really want to commit to doing some more unfeeling.
2: But I think, this, like you said earlier, I think we all do it on a daily basis.
0: Mm.
2: And like when I, when I, when I sat in deep, I thinking, bro, this is what you do every day. But like
1: to survive. Yes, to survive. Mm. Because
2: one of my white friends would say to me, "Well, why didn't you say anything to him?" I am like, that happens every day, bro. Mm. So, but you choose when to engage and choose when not to. And most mm. of the time, ninety percent time, you don't engage, right? Mm. You choose not to feel that, mm. but you do feel it.
1: Mm. I also think. It, right? I also think, and just to sort of round up, um, something else about Zion's work, which is really powerful to me as well, is that like sometimes I know we've spoken about this on this show. Like sometimes I do feel like within our sort of broad coalitions of like anti racists or people that are trying to imagine a better world for the m- most marginalised, is that we are there can often be a um, rejection or an over-critique of how much lived experience informs what we do and how we move forward. And I'm always like quite I I agree with that and I know we need to keep thinking about the structural and how the structural relates to the personal, think about the systemic, like we're not gonna get anywhere if we just focus on my feelings or what what a microaggression does to me. But I'm always suspicious, I'm always wanna be kind of critical friends of these people and say, Look, if what is happening within um our lived experiences as marginalized people is not acknowledged or put within our movements then what what is the feeling what do we have what do we have that those in power that want to harm us do not have we have love we have feeling we have our experiences as humans it's like a a retrieving retrieving the human as paul gilroy says but if we say if we decenter the personal politics or if we decenter love or if we decenter how a microaggression makes us feel from our movements then i don't think we get free mm-hmm. and i i know that we need i do know that we need to de-individualize am, amongst our broad coalitions because the individualization of this stuff has been it's been a problem and we know there's a whole like Capitalist complex in it now, complex in it now. But I'm very, very suspicious of an abandonment of these things, and I think that the, this book does a really good job of asserting why it's
0: important. Mm-hmm. Like the way I think of it is that. Lived experience is always important, but it's not simply context, it's not static. It should be methodology. Mm. It's the, it tells us this, the place from which we are operating, and I think it should inform how we're operating conscientiously, because some of us can move in different ways that the others can't, and then you could move to compensate and, and, and in conversation with each other, in harmony with each other. Um, think of it as a tag team effort. Uh, think of it as a relay race. Um, it's a communal effort, and we're not all operating in the same parts of the race, not a brace. God, no, mm-hmm. terrible joke. No, no, um, no, but, no, like, but that's, that's perfect. That's yeah, yeah like I because th- I think that the sort of struggle that we see um, is around like identity politics. That it's become such a stigmatized phrase, but also like some of the best critiques of identity politics come from people who work in what people might say is oh, that's just identity politics, mm-hmm. because people who deeply work on it know that identity is is. The beginning, but it's not the means to it, it's not um, just the end in itself. Yeah. It's a means, it's a methodology, it's a way of entering um, expansive structural systemic politics and thinking carefully about how we can build these coalitions towards better worlds. Oh, sign,
1: sign, so sick, sick. So <laughs> love it. Sick, it's great, man amazing Zion <laughs> thank you so much for joining us that was absolutely brilliant I'm in my feelings now but I
2: have to drop a mic drop for that yeah mic drop mic drop, drop
1: super... and, so we haven't a surviving slightly mic drop in a while oh. Zion surviving slightly mic drop but
2: yeah, that's sick
1: bro <laughs> that's sick that's my, yeah. listeners thank you so much for joining us and we'll be back again next week bye thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Shantel and Tiso you can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon.
2: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.